Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Brad Hayes, professional geologist with over 35 years of exploration and development experience. He has been the president of Petrel Robertson for 25 years and has been an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta for six years. He directs major exploration and development studies for the petroleum industry and consults for a variety of clients, including operating companies, investors, crown corporations, and regulatory agencies. His international experience includes hydrocarbon basins in North and South America, Africa, and Asia. Recently, Brad has been very active in helium, geothermal, and carbon capture and storage. Today, we'll be discussing the energy evolution with reference to Brad Hayes Corsia course through the University of Alberta titled 21st Century Energy Transition, How Do We Make It Work? Some highlights include discussing the past and future of dependable global energy. We're rocking out today with Brad Hayes. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Good morning, Brad. Thanks for joining me today. Good morning. My pleasure to be here. So today we're going to discuss how do we deliver dependable global energy in a way that mitigates the effects of human-induced climate change, encourages sustainability, and meets the sometimes competing economic needs of many different countries. So reducing emissions is a global challenge. What are some of the 2022 sustainable development goals of the United Nations? Uh, The United Nations has been maintaining this list of sustainable development goals for several years now. 2022 is the latest update. The 17 goals that they outline are the necessities that everybody requires for uh, a modern lifestyle, things like education, access to water, access to food, stable political systems, uh, abundant energy, and a, a number of other things like that, lack of pollution and so on. So there, it's a very good guideline as to what people need. In, in Canada, we're lucky enough we don't really have to think about them very much, but in other parts of the world that don't have access to clean drinking water and stable political systems and things like that, people think about them more. And it's a good point. You know, you really need the energy to have the lights on, to have education, to have everything move forward. Within the sustainable development goals, uh, a couple of them that I'd like to highlight is number seven, uh, and they're in no particular order, uh, but is number seven is affordable, reliable, sustainable, modern energy for all. And I regard that one as the key to everything else, because really you can't You can't educate people, you can't make sure you've got water and all these other things if you don't have energy to put together the things that supply those basic needs. Uh, Also notable in the list of 17 is number 13, and that is to combat climate change. So those are two that are uh, perhaps a little um, not as obvious as, as safe water and things like that, but they have been recognized as critically important. Yeah, and it's so important that it's affordable for all people, not just certain classes, affordable for everybody and, Mm -hmm. you know, keeping climate change in mind. So how much energy will the world use in the future and how will the makeup of the energy consumption look in 2050 versus now? So there's a really wide range of predictions about how much energy uh, humanity will use in the future. Of course, we've got human population growth. We expect that in 2050 we'll have maybe nine and a half billion people on earth versus eight billion people today. So that's a lot more. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> that's needed. Uh, many 
people see that as uh, developing nations acquire more and more of the lifestyle uh, attributes and the energy consumption that we enjoy in Canada and the United States, that their per capita demand will rise as well. So a lot of projections see us using a lot more energy uh, in the future. Other uh, projections uh, see us uh, adopting many more energy efficiency standards, allowing the individual and therefore the overall uh, demand for energy to fall. And so we've really got a wide range there and the planning to meet energy needs in the future is challenging because we just don't really know how much we'll need. But I think the safe money is on more. Yeah, exactly. Than today. Yeah, and, we'll and need more because there's going to be more people and it'll need to be a good mix of everything. Uh, what's the current thoughts on energy poverty decreasing? So over the next number of years, we're hoping that energy poverty will continue to decrease. And over the last 20 years or so, there are fewer and fewer people in the world that have lacked access to electricity and to other uh, modern energy forms. But unfortunately, within the last two or three years, and at least partly associated with COVID, we've seen the rate of energy poverty or the people lacking basic energy sources going up. And the other big concern, I think, in, about energy poverty is even in uh, relatively rich nations like ours, that uh, more and more people just won't be able to afford uh, the, the fuel, the electricity, all the things that go into their lives, plus you know, the inputs of those costs into their food and, and housing and so on, simply because the cost of, of energy in many places is rising quite dramatically. Yeah, and we see inflation here all the time. Um, you kind of mentioned there that over the past, less people have been in energy poverty. And part of that's because we've had these energy transitions in the past. So how quickly have these transitions started and how have they proceeded? So really, if you, if, if you look through the history of humanity up until the early 1800s, we had the power of uh, our muscles and the power of our animals that would drag the plows in that for us. Uh, the primary sort of outside energy source was burning wood for heat and for cooking and things like that. It wasn't until the mid-1800s that the first real energy transition got going, and that was the addition of coal to the energy mix. So by uh, the year 1900, the start of the 20th century, coal and wood produced about the same amount of energy for humanity. Uh, coal allowed us to have steam engines and locomotives and things like that. And so the overall energy consumption started to rise pretty sharply. The history of this energy transition is really pretty continuous from there until today, with more and more energy sources being added throughout the 20th and the 21st century. So we added oil to the mix in the early 20th century and then natural gas. Uh, we harnessed hydroelectricity quite systematically. Later in the century, we got nuclear energy going and geothermal. And then most recently, we've added uh, wind and solar energy as significant components of the whole uh, energy mix. The, the real key to this whole energy transition is that it is really an energy addition. We haven't we're not burning or consuming less of anything today than we did in the past. We burn more wood today than we burned back when wood was the only source of energy for humanity, huh. mainly because there's so many people. Uh, and, and so we really need to understand that energy transition means that we're evolving to meet 
uh, ever-increasing demands because there's more people and more stuff. And if we want energy transition in the future to be any different than that, then there has to be some very radical changes in terms of the amount of energy everyone consumes uh, and uh, perhaps even coming up with other energy sources. One of the things you mentioned in your course was that as these energy transitions happen, the existing sources didn't go away. And like you said, you just add on to it um, because the demand is growing there. So you also talked a little bit in that about why do energy transitions happen? What are some of the things that trigger them? Really what triggers uh, energy transition primarily is the continued increase in demand for energy and the need for more and more different sources to meet that demand. You know, the people were able in the late 1800s to consume more and more energy and meet their demand because they had coal. If they only still had wood, well, they were already having problems with deforestation of many of the uh, more populated countries like England and even the northeastern U.S. because they were just continually burning so much wood uh, as their only uh, as their only energy source. So. The mix changes because we need to add more and more things and, and energy sources that can do more different things too. Like you can't burn wood and coal to power an airplane. We needed the refined oil products with their very high energy density, which I know we're going to talk about, in order to uh, deliver on aviation and allow us to do many of the sort of high energy industrial applications we do today. Yeah, exactly. That's a good lead in for, you know, a lot of the resources that are being added are now not are renewable and some other ones are non-renewable and the energy density changes with the different sources. So how do you see the density of the different sources kind of affecting the needs? So so the concept of energy density is, is one that uh, in simple terms, it, an energy dense source, you can pack a lot of energy into a small space uh, that and uh, a small mass that you can perhaps transport around fairly easily. So nuclear power, uh, nuclear fission is actually the most energy dense source that we've got because a relatively small bundle of fuel rods will power a nuclear reactor and churn out electricity for a long period of time. Uh, and, and so lots of energy from a very small volume. Uh, in terms of uh, f- uh, fossil fuels like oil and gas and coal, well, you know, I can fill up the, the tank in my vehicle and I can drive to you know, Kelowna or Kamloops on one tank of gas because there's so much energy embodied in that, that gasoline for relatively small volume and relatively small mass. As I mentioned before, uh, it's difficult to do some of the higher energy intensive applications with energy sources that have lower energy density. So if you look at airplanes, as I said, you can't, you know, <laughs> you can't put a coal furnace in an airplane and expect to generate the power to fly it. Uh, you need kerosene or jet fuel. Uh, similarly, we can't look uh, in anywhere in the near future to be powering uh, airplanes with electricity because batteries deliver um, electricity but they are not nearly as energy dense. So you need a much, much greater weight of batteries to give you the energy that you would need to fly a plane to the point that all you'd be doing is carrying batteries around <laughs> instead of actually producing useful work. So that energy density thing is, is hugely important. 
And batteries are so important for the energy storage. If you get sources like solar or wind that are intermittent, you really need a way to store it. What are some of the storage solutions that are out there other than batteries? I know they're kind of a primary one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's a really important point that when we are bringing on energy sources that that give us less reliable or, or in terms of time and, and quantity uh, or intermittent energy like solar and wind, you know the. The sun shines when it does and the wind blows when it does and that's when we get our energy. Uh, when those things aren't happening, we need something to fill in the gaps. And so storage is a great idea. The you know, If you've got tons of solar capacity, will you charge up that storage when the sun's really shining? And then at nighttime, you play the energy out from the storage medium. And as you mentioned, batteries, chemical batteries, lithium ion batteries are what we think of first off. But really, you know, they only discharge energy for a short period of time, like a few hours. So we need longer term solutions. And we're thinking about things like pumped hydro storage, which we don't hear much about in Canada, but it's actually pretty common in Europe, where if you've got a hydroelectricity project with a big dam and a water reservoir, well, when there's abundant energy, like a windy, sunny day, you can actually run a generator off that that excess energy, pump water back up into the hydro dam, and then it's available to be played out again when you need more electricity from the hydro. So that's kind of a, you might call it a kinetic uh, or mass storage battery. And we can do similar ideas with compressing air and, and forcing it into caverns underground where it's under really high pressure. And then when we need more electricity, we let the, the compressed air out and it turns a turbine and generates electricity. So what we really need are quite a diverse um, bunch of storage mechanisms like that uh, in order to give us the uh, stored energy back on demand uh, responding very quickly or over longer periods of time that mm -hmm. we just can't expect out of batteries alone. Yeah, only a couple hours isn't going to get you very far. N not in the middle of winter in Calgary no. <laughs> or many other places. One of the um, resources that is really good at self-storage is hydrogen. So what do you see as hydrogen's role in the transition and what's good and bad about it? So hydrogen, uh, we have to realize right off the bat, is not an energy source in itself. It's an energy vector, much like electricity. You know, we, we burn fuels uh, or, or uh, use solar or wind to actually generate electricity, and that carries the energy we need to the places where we need it to use it. And hydrogen is similar. You, you create energy, uh, sorry, you create hydrogen by uh, producing it. You can produce it from natural gas, you can electrolyze water to split it into hydrogen and oxygen are the, the main methods of producing hydrogen. And then you capture that hydrogen uh, and store it in one form or another, transport it to where you need it and use it for uh, an application such as heating or transportation or backing up the electrical grid or things like that. So it's an interesting concept. People have done a lot of research on it. I think that's a real pro. Uh, obviously, when you uh, burn hydrogen, it creates only water vapor. It doesn't create any uh, carbon dioxide. 
uh, which we worry about. That's a big plus. Yeah, and there's no methane associated with it, so no emissions that way. So that's definitely a big plus and the main attractive feature, I think, about hydrogen. Uh, on the on the con side, there are a number of issues, and there's lots of research happening to address these issues. But it, it is very expensive to produce. Uh, currently, it, it's not competitive uh, to to produce it, particularly if you are producing it from processing natural gas, because that actual production creates greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide, which you have to. Uh, if you just let them go into the atmosphere, the whole thing's kind of pointless, isn't it? But mm-hmm. if you if you capture those CO2 emissions, then you've got to add the cost of capturing and storing the carbon dioxide from the process to the whole sort of cost of producing hydrogen. Uh, we're still working on making electrolyzers more uh, efficient and effective so that it's uh, you can use different sorts of uh, not necessarily perfectly pure water, and you can more cheaply uh, create hydrogen out of water. But that, you know, there's research being done on that. Uh, hydrogen is challenging to transport. Uh, I do a lot of work on helium, and we have some similar problems in that they're very, very small molecules. They leak out of stuff really easily. So you can't just uh, take an existing natural gas pipeline and fill it with hydrogen. It will hydrogen will actually react with the metal and uh, and cause it to break down and, uh, over time, and the pipeline will leak. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can convert it to different forms. Uh, so there's there's lots of there's lots of work going on, but there's lots of challenges. Before hydrogen is something that is just in our lives, like electricity is today. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of progress being made, but it's pretty early stages still. Mm-hmm. So one of the things to slow down energy demand growth is to have more efficient use of our energy. Mm -hmm. Is there progress on some efficient conversion to kind of decrease the amount of energy that's lost? Mm. Um, I think uh, think research is going on all the time uh, about this. And one of the main um, selling points or I think good features around uh, renewable energy like wind and solar is that we tend to or we're able to convert a much higher percentage of the energy that comes in from the sun or the wind into electricity than we can by burning something to turn a turbine and, and create electricity so there's there's a greater efficiency in producing electricity uh, from alternative methods so there's there's certainly uh, room to uh, improve our total, uh, uh, reduce our total energy consumption by being more efficient, as you say, during conversion. But, you know, we've been thinking about these issues for, I would say, 50 years since the Arab oil embargo back in the 70s. I mean, that really set off the first round of people looking at better insulation and more efficient use of you know, much higher efficiency appliances in the home and, and higher efficiency lighting. And we've come a long ways down those roads, right? I mean, you know, it wasn't that many years ago that uh, we'd have an incandescent light bulb and it would be a 60-watt bulb, and now you screw in an LED light bulb that consumes maybe one-tenth as much electricity. Uh, well, we've made that improvement. We're not going to make that scale of improvement again. So we're we're... We're getting there, it's helping, but really there's only so much I think that we can gain from energy efficiency 
without people actually changing their consumption behaviors. Yeah, and it was a good point. You know, the light bulbs have improved, so technology's come a long way, but then there's the off, also the behavior of turning off the lights. And yeah. are there any other behaviors that you see as being beneficial? Well, I think we really need to look at, if we want to make a real impact on the consumption of energy overall, we need to look at some pretty fundamental behaviors that we have in our modern lifestyles in places like Canada where we can afford to have these, uh, like the number of vehicles that we own and the the size of those vehicles. And I often point out that uh, uh, the leading uh, vehicle sales in North America are all large pickup trucks, and very few of those are are electric, they're gasoline or diesel powered, and they're more efficient than they used to be, but they're bigger than they used to be as well. And people people just want to have uh, big vehicles and a lot of vehicles, and we've gotten used to that. And it's really difficult to cut our transportation energy expenditures if we keep buying these uh, relatively inefficient vehicles. And similarly, you know, the choices we make about how much we travel, uh, the choices we make about where we get our foods from, uh, the choices we make, even as you pointed out, about turning the lights off. I, you know, even today, well, I was going to say I still bug my kids, but I can't <laughs> because they've moved out. But but they've learned to turn the lights off, right? Yeah. But many people, they don't. And many of our buildings, even now, and I li- I'm working in an older building downtown, and you can't, you can only uh, turn on the lights for the whole floor. You can't just turn on the lights for your office if you're the only one in working, things like that. Yeah. So there's still things that need to be done, but a lot of them need to be pretty substantial. We're not going to, uh, we're not going to solve the problems by nibbling around the edges. If if we want to actually reduce energy consumption, our behaviors, we have to look at them pretty profoundly. Yeah. So we can look at our behaviors and really make some changes there. Um, additionally, we can look at decarbonizing the energy that's used. So there's lots of work going on about carbon capture utilization and storage. Mm-hmm. Um, how does this integrate with the energy transition? It, it is a, an essential component of the energy transition moving ahead. Uh, the International Energy Agency and, and most other you know, forecasters uh, recognize this and they actually sign uh, pretty lofty targets to the amount of carbon dioxide that we're able to capture uh, from industrial processes or even out of the atmosphere in general, and then either convert it to useful products that have a lot of carbon in them, uh, of which there are a lot, uh, and people are coming up with more and more ideas on that all the time, or actually just sequestering it or storing it in reservoirs underground. And there's a lot of work going on on the storage aspect right now. Uh, Alberta has has uh, approved research into 25 what they call carbon hubs or central storage facilities to take uh, the emissions from a lot of our industrial processes and store them underground. And uh, Natural Resources Canada, uh, federal agency, is funding a great deal of research across the country to try to understand where can we sequester carbon dioxide. You know, we've got a lot of big emitters in southern Ontario and got cement plants and waste to gas facilities and refineries and that. And can we find a place to to uh, store their emissions? So there's a lot of work going on in that. Um, it's it's an energy intensive project uh, and uh, it's going to be 
very difficult to make it work economically in a lot of places. But if, uh, if, if society decides that carbon pricing, for example, carbon taxes continue to rise, then there will be more and more economic incentives to spend the money to, uh, to sequester all of these emissions. And some of these, some of these projects are very large scale, like the, the Pathways Alliance, which is a group of six major oil sands producers in northeastern Alberta, probably one of the biggest concentrations of emissions in the whole country. They have banded together to uh, work on one of these carbon storage hubs in Alberta with the hope of, of uh, greatly reducing their net emissions by capturing uh, them at their various plants and pipelining them down to a place where they can uh, inject them underground. And it is pretty promising to be injecting um, carbon into underground reservoirs. You know, we've seen projects like Quest and Weyburn where this has successfully happened, which gives us a little bit of optimism for the hub projects. Um, do you know much about those projects? Yeah, there are a couple of really good examples. So Quest was a project that uh, Shell originated several years ago, and it's now mostly owned, I think, by CNRL. But it was kind of a pilot project in central Alberta uh, and they uh, capture emissions from some of the big refineries in the industrial heartland on the northeast side of Edmonton there. And they pipeline them north for uh, a few tens of kilometers. And they've uh, drilled wells and, in- and are injecting about a million tons of CO2 every year. That's been going on since 2016, I believe, and it, the, it's performing very satisfactorily. It doesn't capture all of the emissions from the industrial heartland, but it works very effectively for the, its design parameters. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, a million tons is a huge number. It is a large number. Uh, Weyburn's a bit of a different project. It's, it's not unique, but it's kind of one of the first big enhanced oil recovery projects or EOR projects where the carbon dioxide is injected into an oil reservoir and it uh, increases the efficiency of oil recovery. So you leave the CO2 underground, you do produce more oil out. And for that reason, some people and the federal government do not look as favorably on EOR projects as they do projects that simply store the carbon dioxide without producing more oil. But in a world where oil demand is 102 million barrels per day and rising steadily, uh, it's, I think it's difficult to make the argument that you should not store carbon dioxide in EOR reservoirs. I mean, the point is you're storing carbon dioxide and you're producing oil that would be produced or be demanded anyway. So. Yeah, and the EOR really helps with the economics of the project makes it easier to bring on stream quicker absolutely it is much more economic than just just storing the carbon dioxide away because you got a product to help pay for the for the process and i think that's one of the elephants in the room is you know as we're diversifying our energy sources how do the economics look do you think consumers are going to be able to afford all these changes I think we're starting to discover that it's very uh, that it's going to be very challenging you know we've been um, in a world the last 10 or 15 years where there's been promises of many more new energy sources that are going to be much cheaper and people talk about, well, you know, uh, I know a few years ago when a number of the new wind and solar projects were getting approved in Alberta, the proponents would say, well, we can sell electricity to the grid for three cents or four cents a kilowatt hour, which is a very cheap rate quite a bit cheaper than we're paying right now. But what they kind of overlooked on that was that that was the price 
of producing that electricity, but because it was solar or wind, it was intermittent. So in order to have a stable grid where everyone could draw electricity when they wanted to have it, you also have to have the energy storage we talked about before, and you have to have other alternative energy systems, which in Alberta are mostly natural gas with a bit of coal, ready to go at any moment when the wind and solar aren't available. So what we're seeing as we bring more of these energy sources in, they might be cheap, just looked at in isolation, but when you think about having to produce electricity in a way that uh, meets demands, then putting there only one component of an increasingly expensive system. So we are certainly finding in places like California and Texas and Germany where there's a pretty high penetration of these individually relatively cheap energy sources uh, of wind and solar into the system, their overall costs are going up and their consumers are having a difficult time because having a reliable grid is becoming more expensive. Yeah, one of the examples that I heard, I think it was Scott Tinker that mentioned it, is you have to think of energy almost like you think of your fridge. You need to have somewhere to keep it and it needs to be well balanced and have a diversification in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, potentially having some of the more expensive and some of the more less expensive sources could help balance everything out in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. When we, well, I was going to say in the oil and gas industry, but really in any industry, when you're contemplating a new project, whether it's building a hydro dam or drilling an oil well, or whatever it might be, uh, you do an economic analysis to decide, or is this going to, you know, am I going to make some money? Is this going to pay the bills and pay for my people and things like that? And when we do that, we usually run what uh, people call a full cycle economic analysis, and we input all of these costs and things to, to see what happens at the end of the day. And that's, that's the sort of analysis we need to run on our electrical grids. The the uh, I don't know if I don't know if your listeners want to hear all the terminology, but <laughs> but many of the projects that we hear proposed as being very cheap are based on the what's called the levelized cost of energy or LCOE, and that that's that two or three cents a kilowatt hour number I told you before. But it does not include all costs in. You have to have full cycle economics. Yeah, there's some policies around energy that are being implemented. Do you think they're helpful in solving such a complex problem? Well, I think the biggest problem I see with policies that impact energy is that most of them are focused on emissions. They're not focused on actual energy production. So you will hear net zero by 2050, or we're going to reduce our CO2 emissions by 30% by 2030, or other targets like that. But the problem with those policy targets is they're put together based on people's ideas of how much we need to reduce emissions, and generally they're not constructed with the idea, well, we do need to have energy security for our people at 2030 or 2050, whatever date you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing uh, as 2030 gets closer is that we're just not achieving the reductions that people are talking about because when we run into an energy security problem, the, uh, the emissions goals tend to go out the window simply because people need energy security first. So we've seen in 
Germany, for example, that as they've shut down their nuclear electrical generation, which of course is very low emissions, uh, and they've relied more and more on wind and solar, what's happened is that they've got a very imbalanced grid and they're ending up burning much more coal than they just did just a few years ago. So their emissions are actually going up, or they're certainly not going down, and, and yet they've gone through all these gyrations uh, to try to meet emissions goals, they forgot to think about energy security first. And so my, you know, what, I, what I've sort of concluded out of a, a lot of this work and research over the last few years is that really where we need to go is to look at policies that consider both energy security and environmental issues. We're focused too much on one specific environmental issue and it's distracting our focus from other things that are really at least as equally important. Yeah, so it's like the basic needs need to be met before you can really move up the chain of um, thinking and making it more and more clean. And that goes back to the UN Sustainable Development Goals we started, we started with. If you don't have energy security, then you don't have the uh, ability uh, the time or, or anything to uh, address all of these other concerns because if you're out uh, if you're out on the street or you're spending all of your money to get enough energy uh, to live your life there's nothing left over to worry about the environmental impacts right so what do you think we're doing well and what do you think we need to work on in the future <laughs> well what we're doing a lot of things really well, I believe. I mean, it's amazing. The innovation, the, the designing new technologies for more efficient energy, for more efficient storage, different ideas to, um, uh, to actually make some of these novel things work. Like I've always, I really like the compressed air energy storage idea of, you know, compressing air and putting it underground and flowing it back. We've got a lot of these things, um, uh, that are being developed. I th and we're also, I think what we're doing well is we're starting through the examples I've talked about to realize how important energy security is. And so I think uh, what we saw, for example, in the United Kingdom a week or two ago, the prime minister actually stepped back on some of the emissions goals with the recognition that he needed to have policy that allowed people to have energy security First, uh, well, sacrificing the emissions controls as much as possible, but or sorry, as little as possible, but but uh, energy had to come first, and he's starting to realize that. What I think we're doing poorly, locally and on a global scale, is we we still don't really appreciate very well as people the complexity of the energy systems, how they are interrelated, and and how if the uh, if the sun doesn't shine over here at this time, it means we've got to turn this coal plant on over there uh, to make up for it. And, and just, uh, you know, the complexities of things. I see a lot of conversations on social media where people say, well, we can do, we can do compressed air energy storage. We can do pumped hydro. We can, and so there should be no problem. But even though we've got those concepts down, we, uh, it still takes a lot of time to 
design them and, and uh, finance them and get them permitted and build them and test them and get them on stream. I mean, uh, I think a really good example is a, a company called E3 Lithium that operates in Alberta, and they've been working for seven or eight years to uh, efficiently extract lithium to make batteries with from highly saline water that occurs naturally underground 2,000 meters deep or so. And uh, they've used a lot of oil and gas technology, but it's taken them seven or eight years, and they're just now basically have built a pilot plant, and they're demonstrating that their process may work. If it does work well, then they may be able to have a commercial facility producing lithium to help meet the really growing demand for batteries in maybe another two or three or four years. So it takes a long time. It mm-hmm. takes a long time to, to develop new technologies and make them commercial. It takes a long time even to develop a new mine. You know, the, if we need more and more copper all the time, it takes uh, 12 to 15 years from when the geologist whacks a piece of rock and sees the, the copper mineralization to the time you've got a mine that's producing copper metal. So if we need way, way more copper for electrical systems in five years from now, you have to have a hard look uh, as to where that's going to come from because, quite frankly, we don't know. And people need to have a better understanding of time frames and complexity of how things work. Yeah, it's a really complex problem. And, you know, in Canada and other places around the world, we've made great progress on it. But it really is a matter of it takes long time to really see these projects to fruition. So, yeah. I, I hate to say it as a geologist, but I have learned a lot from engineers over the last <laughs> number of years about you know, all of the things that need to happen to make even what you think is a pretty simple project come together. And we have to remember that whatever solutions we develop, whatever improvements in our energy systems, that it means that there's a whole bunch of projects that have to be conceptualized and taken all the way through to being put on stream. And all of those processes take a long time. Yeah. Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for sharing your expertise in the area, Brad. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to chat with you today, Marie. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.ca or send us an email anytime. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.